As we begin, let's um, take a look at so the authorship, the letter, set it in context a little bit, and then we'll go into quite granular detail as the text unfolds. This sermon is part of a series that the church is currently doing on community living. And the initial text that was assigned for this Sunday was verses 5 to 8, where you see what some theologians refer to as the ladder of faith, a series of virtues that culminate in love. But if you look at that at the start of verse 5, you will see that it says, for this very reason, and then it launches into that ladder of faith. Now, if the text says, for this very reason, there is a reason it's saying that. And in a sense, the reason in our text today is more complicated and more depth to it than the actual list of virtues. I will alight on those lists of virtues to the extent that there is a first century context to the particular wording that's used, but I will not propose to explain a particular word that makes sense in English. So I'm not going to say the Oxford Dictionary says this means that. Um, I think we all know the language. We can all draw our own conclusions from that. So the letter of Second Peter, the authorship of Second Peter is what it says. Um, some, by way of background, will say that stylistically it is different to First Peter. And so they'll say in First Peter it's lit written in very polished Greek, in Second Peter it's not. And my um, assessment of that, and it's not just my own, but the sort of an understanding of that, is that the first letter of Peter had a scribe, a secretary that was being dictated to, and it's more polished. And Second Peter is very much written from, most likely written by Peter himself, because of some of the things that are in there, some Hebraisms that are in there. Indeed, the introduction which he puts at the start when he's telling us who he is, it actually says Simeon Peter. So he uses his Hebrew name. So he uses the name that he was given at birth, Simeon, and then he uses the name that Christ gave him, Rock, Simon Peter. And so the only other place where that's, that Simeon is used is in Acts 15. So he's introducing it as if he's penning it. And when it was written, it's probably around about 65 to 67 AD. Um, the reason that's um, the dating of it is because Nero uh, ruled as emperor at the time until 68 AD, and towards the end of Nero's reign, um, Peter was executed. So, and he writes this, if you look further down, as almost his last will and testament. He's trying to um, explain to people what they should hold on to when he's no longer around, essentially. The, um, to go through this, I'm going to also, sorry for this introductory, but we have to do it because it, it's a layer by layer. It'll get more and more, sort of wake up, essentially, and let's get layer by layer into it. I'm going to use Paul also to explain Peter. And I think I'm in good company because in, um, in chapter 3, he says, Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him. He writes the same way in all in letters, in all his letters speaking of these matters. His letters contain some hard things, but read them. So if Peter is extolling 
Paul's letters, then when it gets sort of to the more theological side of today's text, I will cross-refer to Paul to explain Peter. So let's, um, let's begin after introducing himself at the start as Simon Peter. He calls himself a servant and an apostle, or more to the point, a slave and an apostle. And slave is not derogatory there. It's, um, in the Greek, it's doulos. And throughout the New Testament, you see Paul and Peter referring to themselves as slaves. That's not the um, uh, oppression type of slavery. It's a very first century concept that they are owned by someone else. So what Peter is taking pleasure in is that he is owned by Jesus. And that's what Paul is doing as well. I'm not my own, I'm owned by Jesus. And if Jesus, the one who sacrificed himself on the cross, owns us, that is something that they are proud of. So they introduce themselves in a number of times as slave, which sometimes gets translated as servant. Apostle, he's been sent. Then, again, he does a Hebrew and a Greek greeting. You will find in a lot of New Testament letters that the grace of God be with you, the grace of Jesus Christ be with you. Here, he says, grace and shalom, grace and peace be with you, as he introduces it. So again, that's an indication of the authorship being Petrine, because he's coming at it from, almost without thinking, from his own heritage. So we, we now will, um, again, another introductory, another two introductory things before I really launch in, is uh, the second person, second person singular or second person plural. Um, if you had a King James Bible, you'd have a the or a ye, and you'd know which is which. Um, every single second person in this text that we're looking at is second person plural. So the you is to the collective. Of course, when he's addressing the collective, it applies to the individual. But when you're going you, 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 yours, etc., and reading this text, think about Peter writing to us. And so we should understand this in the context that in his letter here, he cross-refers to his earlier letter, 1 Peter. 1 Peter was written to the churches in Asia Minor, and he's writing to them again. So he's basically saying, it's all you guys I'm writing. So it's actually, this letter is very easy to directly apply to us as a church, because unlike the letter to the Romans, the letter to the Corinthians, where, let's take Corinthians, it, it sees the problems that the Corinthian church has and then addresses them, that is Paul, and then we have to step back and say, okay, do we have similar problems? And if we had similar problems, what concept is Paul raising and therefore we can cross-apply that to us? This particular letter from Peter is a universal epistle. So you can quite, he just says, hi, I'm Simon Peter, to you. And he launches in. He's not addressing a particular issue in a particular church. He's giving advice to a collective of churches. It's a circular, essentially, what we'd call an encyclical these days. So that's what's going on here. And the last introductory point to make is that you will come across the word knowledge every so often in the text. They're not the same underlying word. Um, there are two words there. One is epignosis, the other one is gnosis. 
Epignosis is the lived experiential knowledge. Gnosis is an intellectual learned knowledge. And we'll, we'll see the difference. So when he says grace and peace be yours in abundance through, through Jesus, through the knowledge of God, that knowledge he's talking about is the lived knowledge, the experiential knowledge of the collective of the church. So he's talking about that as he introduces himself and gets to the text that we're going to look at. So we've dealt with who's writing it, we've dealt with when he's writing it, we've dealt with who he's addressing, and in this context I'd say he's addressing us. Now let's get to the actual text starting at verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Whose divine power? Christ's divine power. So he's talking there about the divinity of Christ. He is, as he said earlier, God and Savior Jesus Christ. Again, he's, he's now looking to the divine power of Christ, which has given us everything we need for a godly life. Then it gets very interesting, the detail here. I'll read it and then we'll unpack it together. He has called us by his own glory and goodness, so far so good. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So, um, what are these sort of blessings, precious promises that he has given that then enable us, so precious promises, we look at that, uh, that enable us to do something that sounds very elevated, to participate in the divine nature. So let's look at the promises by cross-referring to Paul. Paul addresses this salvifically and says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So we're looking at the precious promises being salvation. And how does salvation, and the reason I say that is because if we back up a little, he says that the people who have received this letter have received a faith as precious as ours. So he's equalizing the faith that he has with the faith of his audience. So whatever promises he has got, they have got. And then when we look at Paul, Paul is explaining what those kinds of promises are that have been given to everyone, be it Paul or Peter, or be it you and I. So what are these salvific promises? Justification is a declaration of righteousness before God. It's a forensic declaration. It is the gospel. Jesus took upon himself sin and death so that we don't have sin and we live in Christ. It's a divine exchange. Justification is a forensic declaration by God. Then, 
It moves to sanctification. In other words, beginning more and more to be conformed to the image of Christ. It's a lifelong process. You are declared not guilty, but God's interest is to conform you into the likeness of Christ. And then, having justified and this conforming begins, there's the glorification. Whether Christ comes first or you die and see Christ face to face, that is the end state, the glorification that you are face to face. It's the end point. There's no more of a journey. Life eternal. So that's the salvific track that he is taking by saying we have inherited these precious promises and addressing it to a collective of people who have the same faith that he, Peter, has. Now, having, um, having done that, so having been given these precious promises, he's saying we can participate in the divine nature. Now again, um, looking at Paul, you'll recall that in the letter to the Philippians, he said about Christ, who being in very nature God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped or used to his own advantage, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, in other words, humanity. What's happening here is that we are being told that we can now participate in the divine nature. So there's the, what theologians term, the humiliation of Christ, in other words, his descent from divine nature to human nature. And what that has achieved is the elevation or the potentiality of an elevation of humanity to the deity. Now, I'm not saying you're going to become gods, but it's what, what, what is saying. Paul repeatedly uses the phrase, in Christ Jesus. You are found to be in Christ Jesus. And this is the Petrine equivalent of that phrase participation in the divine nature. So the essence of God is transcendent. No one's going to become that. But you will participate in the life of God because in Christ Jesus, we are called to be within the life of God. And um, I think, being in a Church of England church, I should um, alight on the way the Church of England actually explains this. I could, uh, this has been a concept that's been in the early church, that if you look at all the salvific thing, they collected together and they call it theosis, becoming more like God. And um, the Church of England distills that and in the collect, in the common worship for the first Sunday after Christmas, puts it like this. Almighty God, who wonderfully created us in your own image and yet more wonderfully restored us through your Son, Jesus Christ, grant that as he came to share in our humanity so we may share the life of his divinity, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. So that's the invitation. That's the distillation of what it means there to say participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world through Christ. So this is the backdrop on which he then says, for this reason, make every effort, and then lists the ladder of faith, rung by rung by rung, elevating it to love. I will come back to that. Verses 5 to 8 are the texts that Nate wants us to look at in, in terms of community living. But I will drop below that and then come back to it. Because there are... I could shy away from 
quite difficult things here, but if it's in the text, let's, let's, let's go with it for a little bit. Um, the text, the section, is dealing with making every effort to confirm your calling and election. And at the same time, we looked at how Paul had referred to this, those who he foreknew, he called, etc., etc. And this has always been a debate in the church. So, am I coming to Christ? Or has Christ, God, through Christ, known me from eternity past and is calling me? And this is a debate amongst brothers and sisters. So I will take a mediating, ironic line through this. I don't propose to go through one to criticize the other, nor do I propose to do the opposite. But I do want to not shy away from it. We, as a church, are addressed by Paul in his letters as the bride of Christ. The bridegroom has every right to choose his bride. He's not going to go off and marry someone he doesn't want. He will choose his bride. If God is sovereign and Christ is God and we are the bride of Christ, he will choose us. If you find yourself within the church, you're already chosen from before all time because God the Father in Christ knew that he would be choosing his church. It is a sovereign act of God to have chosen his bride. I want to leave that thought with you without going down the track of what that means individually. But you are known individually because you are part of his elect body of Christ. And so if we are now saying that confirm your calling and election, and if God has chosen his church from the outset, this is not a salvation point. So we are not saying, let's go make every effort so that, hey, God, please choose me. That is not what's happening. It's a confirmation of the calling and election. So it's, um, if you want to outwardly show that you are inwardly transformed, then let's look at these virtues. The transformation should lead to these virtues. And we should make every effort to cultivate these virtues, to confirm both to ourselves and to our neighbor our calling and our election. So I just want to take a step back to make sure that sort of we are all on the same page on that. God the Father in Christ Jesus saves us. The effort is Christ's. It's paid for. We are saved. Therefore, let us now show to the world, to ourselves, that we are saved and confirm that calling and that election which Christ has already achieved. So it's on the backdrop of that that we come to the middle of this text, which says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith in other words, we believe in Christ, we are saved, goodness, 
not going to say much about goodness. You know what goodness is. If goodness is here, you'll, it doesn't need much definition. And to goodness, knowledge. Here I will slow down. This is intellectual learnt knowledge, not the previous knowledge I was talking about. So the experiential knowledge is the backdrop, and now he's saying faith, goodness, and add to it knowledge. Read your Bibles is basically what he's saying. Understand. I mean, just like in, uh, at the end of Luke, Jesus gave the best Bible study ever to two people on the road with him. We can read the Bible. We can understand it. We can grapple with the text. Get to know the faith in which you reside. So knowledge there is learned knowledge. He's saying add gnosis to everything you've got. And to knowledge, self-control. And we've seen this before. We've seen this in Galatians as part of the, um, of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. I mean, a lot of people say fruits of the Holy Spirit. It's actually one compound fruit of the Holy Spirit. There's a sort of grammatical thing going on there. The fruit of the Holy, Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. It's uh, another translation, the REB puts it as the harvest of the Holy Spirit. So Paul puts it as one thing that should be blossoming if we are in Christ, if we have the Holy Spirit. And self-control is now picked up by Peter. And I'm slowing down on that because self-control should differentiate us from our surroundings. We should know the mind of Christ, as Paul puts it, we are not judged, but we judge all things. Not judge in a negative way, but we can examine all things. And therefore, having examined all things, we can exercise our self-control, what we should and should not do. This is not almost to please God. This is to know how to live a life of God. That's the self-control it's talking about. So we'd like to, to self-control perseverance. Life is a journey. Good days, bad days. Healthy days, unhealthy days. Um, whatever happens, persevere in Christ. I mean, he writes this letter knowing that he's about to be executed and he perseveres. It's about as bad as it gets. And so he's saying, persevere. To perseverance, godliness. I will alight on godliness. In, the, in a pagan society, the people who were referred to as godly, or godliness, which was sort of in the um, uh, Greco-Roman system, pantheism system, is they were dedicated to particular gods and they continuously communed with that particular god. They were godly. So what he's saying, he's applying that to the Christian life. And when he says godliness, he's kind of having built up rung by rung what's happening. Now be godly. Have a continuous understanding of the presence of God. Commune with God based on the knowledge that you've seen about him. Don't guess what God is like. Learn about him. At the same time, he starts off the, uh, the, the text we've read with experiential knowledge. So when he says godliness, it's an overall continuous, effectual understanding and life within the Godhead into which we are invited by the process of deification, participate in the divine nature. So there is this participation that he's inviting us into, and that's the godliness. If he's inviting us to be your... Uh, you know, in Christ, or to conform to the image of Christ, or to participate in the divine nature, different apostles, same concept. That's what the godliness is. So once we are godly, we, we know God, and we participate in him. His Holy Spirit is living in us, and we can assess all things, judge all things, not 
critically, but in the sense that we can understand if something is of God or not of God based on the knowledge we've attained by reading our Bible, based on the Holy Spirit, which through human authors authored that Bible, and therefore if you merge the author with the text, you get to grips with it more and more. So that's the godliness it's looking at. And so to godliness, mutual affection. Mutual affection, in my view, I'm sorry, is a weak translation. The underlying text is Philadelphia. It's brotherly love. And don't take this as exclusionary to women. Um, in the thought of the New Testament, because inheritance laws at the time meant that only men inherited, you get bizarre texts where there's a collection of men and women, and it's as if a person standing up couldn't see the fact that there are women there, and there's, they go, brothers. That's, that's not to exclude women. That's make, to elevate women and make them co-heirs by referring to all of them. So this um, mutual affection is brotherly love. Um, and to sort of, so what he's saying is, as people who have our identity in Christ, brotherly love, and then he culminates it in love itself. But the reason I went into the Greek there for a second is, in the mutual affection bit, it was Philadelphia, filial love. And the final love is Arabi, an active love. So there's a filial love, and the two love words are not the same. Phil, Adelphia, love of brothers and sisters. And then agape, love of God. Now, why is that there? Why does it culminate in, in love, this sort of series of virtues? God is love. We love because he loved us first. It's a verb. It's an activity. It's not an ethereal emotion. By all means, have your ethereal emotion for your partner, um, and your spouse, etc. That's, that's fine. But, but it's even there, it's this active love that it's talking about. I love you love. God loves. And what do we see? He's, he goes all the way to the cross because of his love. It's that kind of love. So that is why it's coming at the top and it's capped. And it doesn't then say, and to love adds something else. It just goes up and stops. Just like Paul says, we have faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Why do we have faith? Because we have to believe in something that we don't see. Why do we hope? Because we hope in the salvation that is to come. Why do we love? Because he first loved us. And why is the love the culmination? Because once you see God face to face, ultimately, you don't need faith, nor do you need hope. But you love for eternity, because he loves you for eternity. Same concept here. Goes up and stops. Now, he then builds practically on this in the interim. So I've dealt with the end of this text, and there's a bit in the middle where it says, so, and all this will keep you from being unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, if you don't have these, he's saying you're blind if you don't, if you don't see these virtues. This is how you should be, otherwise you're blind. The, 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 these virtues will keep you from being effective. You can be a highly ineffective saved person, or you can be a highly effective saved person. And what he's exhorting us to be is a highly effective saved person, to know what we are, and therefore to be 
in what we are. Where are we participating in the divine nature at a spiritual level? Where are we biologically participating in this world and existing on a day-to-day -day basis with our fellow human beings and creation? So we steward creation while spiritually participating in the divine nature. That's what he's getting at. He's saying be an effective, saved person. And that is essentially um, the... Um, the message of this, and this is coming from Peter, who um, stood up before the Sanhedrin, we see in Acts, and says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So we're saved in Jesus. Now let's get this rung up on rung of virtues to be effective in our ministry in the world. And he's addressing who? He's addressing the collective you. He's addressing the church. He's addressing us. So let's all come into this. Let's all participate in the divine nature as individually we enter into Christ Jesus and then we come together as a church. Thank you.